Hey queer friends, are you ready to be inspired? Welcome to Season 5 of Coming Out and Beyond, a podcast that shares stories from the LGBTQIA community. Here's your host, Anne-Marie Zanzel. Hi, this is Anne-Marie Zanzel and welcome to another episode of Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA stories. I am very excited to welcome to the show today, Dr. Roxy Manning and Sarah Payton. So let me tell you about these two fabulous people. Roxy Manning has a PhD and is a clinical psychologist and certified Center for Nonviolent Communication trainer. She brings decades of service experience to her work, interrupting explicitly and implicitly oppressive attitudes and cultural norms. Dr. Manning has worked, consulted, and provided training across the U.S. with businesses, nonprofits, and government organizations wanting to move towards equitable and diverse workplace cultures, as well as internationally in over 10 countries with individuals and groups committed to social change. She also works as a psychologist in San Francisco, serving the homeless and disenfranchised mentally ill population. She is the author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations. Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy, and the co-author with Sarah Payton of the companion text, The Anti-Racist Heart, a Self-Compassion and Activism Handbook. Sarah Payton is a certified trainer of nonviolent communication and neuroscience educator, integrates brain science and the use of resonant language to awaken and sustain self-compassion, particularly in the face of such difficult issues like self-condemnation, self-disgust, and self-sabotage. She teaches and lectures internationally and is the author of Your Resonant Self book series. She's also the co-author alongside Roxy Manning of the Anti-Racist Heart, a Self-Compassion and Activism Handbook. Welcome to the show, ladies. I'm so excited to um, meet you and talk about this very, very important subject. Thank you for having us. So the first question I ask every one of my guests is, tell me your story. So I would really love to hear about your coming out stories and also with Sarah about how she became such a ally to the community. So who wants to go first? (laughs) (laughs) I'd love it if you went first, Sarah, actually. (laughs) Well, when I was about 20 years old, my best friend came out Mm -hmm. and I was like, dang, this is hard. And um, and it was sort of similar to my anti-racism journey in that, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't very good at it. I wasn't particularly raceful. <laughs> you know, it's like, this looks way too hard. Don't do it. Just don't be gay. <laughs> so anyway, you know, you, you love, you love people and it drags you kicking and screaming towards truth, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, and then I became totally committed to and devoted to, gosh, people being who they are. Mm-hmm. Good mm-hmm. Lord, you know what, these funny constrictions that we put on, on folks and tell them they're not supposed to be who they are. And, and it just makes them sick and kills them. and 
you know, makes all kinds of bad things happen. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so yeah, let's let's support the people in being exactly who they are, so that everybody gets to flourish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. So Roxy, can you tell us yeah. a little bit about your journey? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because I haven't really thought a lot about my journey. And so mm -hmm. I've been sitting here thinking about it since you've asked. Um, I think it's, it's there are like kind of a few moments that really stand out for me. Mm -hmm. One of them, and they're often kind of tragic because I grew up in that time when coming out wasn't actually a thing that you did or that was, was received with any grace. So I think the first thing that I remember, like even thinking about being queer was in high school, I had a friend and I actually had a huge crush on him and he was a lovely person, one of my best friends. And we, I mean, we stayed together. For, I grew up in New York City. We hung out together all the time in New York City. We went away to college. We would still write each other these long letters, still buy like handwritten letters. And then I heard one day that he had died and he had taken his life. And part of it was that he had tried coming out to his family and they disowned him. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I realized that one of the things that my friend and I had in common is that we're kind of using each other to present this kind of sense of normalcy to the world. And I'd had tons of crushes in high school on people of every gender. You know, like gender was not really the signifying thing around my crushes. But I never acknowledged it. I never talked about it. Mm -hmm. And because I was bi, you know, there were times when I dated men and I actually got married. I had children. So kind of like that forward facing um, persona to the world, like it was really easy to pass it straight. Like no one asked right. me. So I never told. It was like, don't ask, don't tell. Just wherever yeah. I was in the moment, that's where I was. And so I have, you know, absolutely adored my husband. He's a really lovely person. Um, he's now my ex-husband and he's still a lovely person. <laughs> and as part of our relationship, as we were kind of journeying around how we wanted to be together, we recognized that monogamy wasn't actually the thing that worked for us. And that's when I started being more explicitly um, choosing to be with women and not just with men. And mm -hmm. so as part of my coming out, like when we decided to separate, my parents were like, what are you doing? Why are you separating? You know, like you, you should stay together forever. And that was when I came out. That's when I said, you know, well, actually, I'm actually dating this person. And I started introducing them to my folks. And my parents are immigrants. They were super traditional. They weren't really happy with it. Like they still believed that if you were queer, that meant you were going to go to hell. And so right. for them, it felt very much like they were protecting my soul. They were saving me um, by disapproving of my choices. And I honestly say that it didn't get a lot better until I think there were two years when I I talked to my parents if they called me, but I wasn't really initiating conversations just because they were so painful. Um, and then actually when Pope Francis <laughs> became Pope and started signaling like more acceptance, my parents also became more accepting. And oh. we actually went on a cruise with one of my partners. And so there was this journey around both how do I how do I first acknowledge what's my truth? How do I start living my truth? And then how do I start living that truth more openly to the world? And this might actually be one of the few times that I've actually talked about it publicly in recorded media, in part because I do travel internationally to teach. And I remember I was going to go to Uganda once to teach. And it was yeah. like, don't actually, like, even if I'm safe for talking about my identity, people who come to my workshops might not be safe. And right. so there's always this balancing for me of how do I navigate, you know, the importance of being known for who I am and the risk that it still can invite other people into. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a little tiny bit about my story. 
Well, it, honestly, um, now do you do you are you exclusively with women now, or do you still um, have you been? I've been exclusively with women for the past ten years, but not necessarily. It's just that's just by chance, right? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Roxy, you sound, you know, your journey sounds so typical of people who come out later in life. Like, and I don't know if you've done any like reading about it or anything, but the super typical journey. And also too, sounds like your parents were Catholic. So really important um, that, you know, what, what Pope Francis has done with the more acceptance of, it's not been great, but it's better. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure for them, it it provided them some solace that you're, you yeah. know, more about existential worry, it sounds like, that yeah. you want to go to hell than, than actually, um, uh, than, than you being queer. Like that's like, because yeah. you're queer, you're going to go to hell, you know? Yeah. And, and a lot of, you know, that's actually really one of the biggest needs a lot of times in the later in life community when people come out more publicly as queer, you know, I mean, you were, you were bi, but you were, you know, bi invisibility. If you're married to a man, then, yeah. know, you know, they just assume that you're straight. And, you know, a lot of times with this journey, um, you know, people keep coming out and, you know, showing themselves more. And what ends up happening is their parents often have a really hard time with it. Right. Which is so typical because they thought they had launched their child and they were on this certain path. And then all of a sudden they're not on that path anymore. And they're like, what? <laughs> and they have a really hard time. And there's not a lot of you know, it's more the, the help is geared towards more the, um, you know, when your kid comes yeah. out. It's not when your big kid comes out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there needs and to I be. I think for me, like this was really important because this is where compassion comes in, right? You know, like that's part of the work that Sarah and I do. And I think about exactly what you just said, that for a lot of these, like, you know, we were older adults coming out. So right. we had much older parents coming out who had a certain sense of like, I did the right thing. I raised my children in the way that matched my values. And then all of a sudden they're getting this message that this child I thought was, quote, OK, is not OK. And so being able to hold a lot of compassion for the struggle that our parents are going through, how do they kind of realign their world and still see our beauty? Right. And also still hold compassion for ourselves that this is like their pain is not going to prevent me from being who I want to be. Right. That's a huge journey. Yes, it is a huge journey. And also, too, a lot of times for people who come out later in life, there is also the knowing, you know, something's not right for most of your life. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I call it the missing piece. So many of my clients call it, too, is like this this missing piece where you're not sure what it is. And, and then you realize it. And so when you come out, it's not new information for you. I mean, there are people that fall in love with somebody and it is new information for them. But for most people, like I was somebody who always was vaguely aware I was queer, um, you know, that information is new to your parents. So right. like people have been thinking about this for 10 or 15 years, um, but for mom and dad or other loved ones, your spouse, you know, this is brand new information to them. So it takes them a while to process. And I love what you say you and Sarah are promoting about, you know, self-compassion for for yourself, but also compassion for your parents and for the people around you who, you know, have to like reorganize their thinking about things, about the queer community. And so I really appreciate that, Roxy. Thank you.
You're welcome. It's like when I think about our books, even though our books are really focused on anti-racism, one of the things that we were considering when we wrote the books is that in some ways it's kind of a template for anti-oppression, right? Mm -hmm. So really Mm -hmm. also being able to attend to some of the same pieces that we have to struggle with anti-racism, how to have those hard conversations. How do we have those conversations also with, like you said, our loved ones, our community, when they're saying, wait a second, who are you? (laughs) What's going on? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So tell me about the work you two to do, do together. Well, um, a part of the work that we do together is nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. Is, is uh, thinking about this this lovely body of work that Marshall Rosenberg developed, where um, there's a a real um, emphasis. Uh, Ro- Roxy's a very good friend and my. I'm a, I'm a fangirl. Uh, um, <laughs> she was on our podcast and all of a sudden her name left me. Um, uh, she's, Roxy will know who it is as soon as I say the quote. Um, she, she says, NBC is a communication, is, is a communication math, is a, is a spiritual practice masquerading as a community, as a, as a community, sorry, as a communication taste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Kit Miller. Thank you. Thank you for remembering. <laughs> so, uh, so this wonderful woman, Kit Miller, this is what she says. She says, nonviolent communication is a spiritual practice masquerading as communication method. And uh, Marshall's invitation was to kind of look deeper, like what's below what somebody says. If somebody says, I hate you, what are they really saying? You know, what is what what are they speaking about a betrayal of trust or or a loss of connection or a love that's been taken and turned upside down? Oh, what's the deep truth within what people are saying? Which then allows for all kinds of connection in some very surprising places. Mm-hmm. Because uh, all of a sudden there you are, you know, sort of head to head with somebody. I remember I was um <laughs> I was driving and I got really confused and I was if I turned I was in the right turn lane but if I turned right it was going to send me on a freeway going south for miles and I was just sitting there going no I don't want to go south for miles and the guy behind me started beeping and I got really scared and he got out of the car and he was this enormous black man and he was walking toward me and I was like I rolled down the window and I'm I'm like oh I'm just so distraught I I don't know where to go I said I'm sure that you're just so frustrated and you need to get where you need to go and he just melted and just it was just a bad but it was it's like there's there it is you know there's this connection that happens that allows us to to go deeper than yelling at each other or being angry with each other or threatening each other or you know there's so much that 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 gets changed once we begin to be able to both speak about our own hearts and look for other people's hearts So, are you in the process of coming out later in life? Are you feeling isolated or lost, cut off from friends and family, or just trying to figure out what is the next step for you? Well, I have a wonderful coaching program called Lotus Group Coaching. It is for people who are female-identifying, cis or trans, 
or non-binary folks comfortable in this, those spaces. And we provide emotional, spiritual, and intellectual support for people who are in the process of coming out later in life. We discuss many things in our community, but what's most important is that you have a community, a community of others who understand. Each one of the coaches in the program have come out later in life, and everybody who is a member of our program is somewhere in the process. So if you are seeking community and you want a soft place to land, go to my website, amoryzanzel.com and book a connection call. We would love to talk to you. There's something like when I think about nonviolent communication and especially kind of the focus on your podcast, I think like the work that we do is around helping people create connections, helping people think about these huge divides that seem impossible to cross and find a way back together. And so that was part of my journey with some people in my community, that even though it's like when I look at my parents and I look at how much pain it was for them when I disclosed my identity, it would have been really easy to kind of, for both of us, to go into these silos, right? For them to say, okay, I'm a sinner, I'm hopeless, I'm done. And for me to think they're never going to accept me, I'm never going to talk to them, and you know, I now need to separate from my family. And instead, this work that we do, nonviolent communication, it created a possibility for me to be able to kind of just do a lot of grieving. You know, a lot of times we don't talk about the importance of grieving and thinking. I would have loved to have stayed in that kind of like almost pretend world where my parents accepted me fully. There was never a doubt in their mind that I was the child that they wanted and how beautiful that would have been. And that's not the world I have. So how could I grieve the loss of that easy relationship and still be willing to commit to the hard work of connecting with them, saying, mom and dad, you know, it's painful when I don't have a sense I can show up and be exactly who I am. And I want to understand what's going on for you, right? Mm -hmm. One other thing I'll say, though, and we can come back to this later, I just always feel like an urge to say it really early on, is that I can imagine that some of the folks listening to this are thinking, well, you know, yes, I could maybe understand it with my family, but some First, some family members are really toxic. Right? They do damaging things. I had a really dear cousin who was beaten and beaten and beaten and actually had to leave her home and leave the island um, where she lived because there was so much homophobic homophobia when she came out. Um, so, you know, I want to acknowledge that even in when we talk about nonviolent communication and making bridges, we're also talking about how do you hold with compassion those times when you say, I can't stay connected with this person because there's too much harm. It's not safe. I can't actually find that bridge right now. And to mm -hmm. grieve that without demonizing that person, to kind of mourn their lack of capacity to show up any differently, mm -hmm. and that I'm going to take these steps to protect myself. Mm -hmm. I really am intrigued about you mentioning about spiritual practices that um, nonviolent communication is a spiritual practice. And, and I love the word practice. I always remind my clients that practice is a practice, right? We're not always going to get it right. So tell me, so when you are like starting to practice yoga, for example, you don't immediately go to a handstand. There is a whole bunch of prep that goes in the different poses that you use so that you can get to the handstand. And I'm not enough an experienced yoga person. Uh, like I'm not a yoga instructor, so I can't tell you that's that series. 
So when somebody is like, oh, I'm really intrigued by this, you know, what is the prep for them to begin the steps to move into this deeply spiritual practice of seeing the shared humanity in all of us, which is really hard. And we've been living in a world that, like, for example, when I say I have compassion for Donald Trump, people are astounded because I do, because you see a severely damaged human being that has been totally hurt by the world. And um, so how do you begin the practice of of moving towards this really important um, way of living in the world, because it's not just, it's not just for, you know, uh, com- it's not just for the big picture. It's also for the intimate little picture, you know, with the people we meet on the day-to-day basis. Well, for me, there are a couple of first steps, a couple of different places where we can enter into this practice. The first is like one of the goals, like you said, of nonviolent communication is to really see the shared humanity in all of us. And I talk about that as like kind of really seeing us all as part of the love community. We're all part of the same human family. And one of the early first steps for me was recognizing how much, like you said, the world isn't set up this way. And some of the messages we've been given is that we're not enough right? We're not good enough. We don't actually belong. And especially if you're queer, if you have some of these marginalized identities, you get the message all the time that you are not part of this idealized human family. And so for me, that very first step is to start to look at ourselves, to look at the places where I don't see myself as deserving, as worthy, as kind, as good, you know, as beautiful, and to hold a lot of, um, checking in and grieving and mourning there. So one of the things I did was I would, every time I did something I didn't like, I would beat myself up, right? So if I was like, oh, I need to lose weight, like first, like whatever that's about, which is all of these ideas about what people should look like, right? But I'd internalize them. And so then if I found myself eating a cookie, I would say, I'm a bad person. I'm hopeless. I have no, you know, there's nothing good about me. And it was so harsh. But this is what a lot of us learned as children, like the way to change somebody was to shame them. And so we need to undo that. So starting to look at myself in those moments and say, huh, I've got this cookie. Why? What is it that I'm needing in this moment? Right. And then sometimes it would be like, wow, I'm actually just needing some simple pleasure. Like today was a really hard day and I'm just needing something that will just like help me ground into like the sensations of my body and how much joy there still can be in little things. And when I connected with that, I didn't have to beat myself up anymore. It wasn't that I was a bad person. It was like, oh, this is what I'm looking for. And is there something else that can give me that same kind of beautiful sensation? And sometimes it would be something as simple like, instead of eating this cookie, I'm going to go for a walk first and take pictures of flowers. I have so many flower pictures. Mm -hmm. And then come back and see if that helped ground me or if I still want the cookie, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do we start to understand what are the needs that we're trying to meet in all of our actions? And when we get good at doing that for ourselves, we can start to do it for other people. Mm -hmm. So it starts with us. I think another entry point because this is my is my whole world is like, how the heck do we get people inside of their own brains to have a little self-compassion, which is a beautiful entry point, but can sometimes be impossible. <laughs> um, but uh, another entry point is um, is uh, 
stories, stories about uh, about people people thinking that something people have done something bad and then realizing, oh, so um, like the, the idea of like you're you're walking down the street and somebody hits you hard from behind and you're angry, you're pissed off, and you turn around and it's a little kid who's uh, run into you instead of instead of going under a bus, you know, on a, they've lost their brakes on their bike and they, they, they grabbed you instead of, instead of dying, you know, and you're like, Oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, those kinds of kind of metaphorical stories, that's one that Marshall told, but those kinds of medical metaphorical stories, people take away and they mull over them, you know, sometimes for years saying the world is not necessarily as I perceive it to be on the surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a majority of the work I do with the women I work with is that I do a, a group coaching program for people who are coming out later in life. And what I have found is the shared common humanity and, and the telling of the story, because I believe like, like I was a hospice chaplain for seven years. So I've heard a billion stories in my life. But what I realized in that work when I did that work is that people need to share their stories. People need to tell their stories, but also our stories connect us. And, and, and that, Um, once we hear another person's story, especially if we're going through something difficult, um, no matter what it is, that's why AA is so brilliant and it works, is that people realize, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the first person that has ever felt this. Um, So when you are starting to do anti-racist conversations, you know, there, there just comes with so much baggage from you know, from everybody because of experiences, because of what they've been told, what they've learned, um, laws, government, you know, conditioning. Um, how do you begin those rest, those conversations? Because I want to share something. I'm going to be vulnerable with, with you is I've always considered myself, you know, a very good ally to minority communities. Um, I, I've, you know, I grew up in a pretty white world, though I've dated people of other colors and stuff like that. And I became very aware of my own internalized racism. I was going to, I was going, I got my master's at Yale Divinity School and I was, I got lost and I was going down the street and I kept going back and forth and back and forth. And this young man came out and he was African-American and he came out and went like this. And I, I like, you know, slowed down and I did that roll down of three inches of the window. Mm. And he leaned into the car and he goes, ma'am, you're going down a one-way street. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, Anne-Marie. Like, I mean, wow. I was like stunned. This happened about 12 years ago. I was stunned that someone like myself was so like, was racist, you know? And I was like, oh my goodness, I have to <laughs> on this and so I was really happy that I got caught on the one day street I'm really happy that young man came out and made sure I didn't get into a car accident but I was really stunned that that some you know that I was somebody that had all of that inside of me even though I had dated plenty of people of other races and just because you date somebody of another race doesn't make your make you an anti you know you're not you still have racism in you and so you know when we start having these conversations um, 
you know, how do you begin? How do you begin? Even when like good intentioned, it's like Sarah was saying, good intentioned white people, (laughs) you know, how do you begin? What a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, go on, Sarah. Well, it reminds me of my story. I mean, why did I have to say the person was black? You yeah. know, there was there was internalized, you know, or internalized or it's almost like internalized racism almost means we're turning against ourselves. But like, it's like it's like in ourselves, you know. It's like yeah. how the fuck do we get it out? And it, when and of course, folks who are of the global majority, which is a wonderful term, the Roxy, I love that Roxy, yeah, minority, yes. Yeah. Which is like, you know, hey, white people, you are not the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how, how do we how do we begin to, to 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 get it out of ourselves? How do we start to it's almost like we need to steep in in uh, one of the things I love is the desire for beloved community, like the a real commitment to a whole world of um, uh, of care and thoughtfulness and inclu- and and deliberate noticing of the ways that privilege knocks us away from having everybody be part of of of, of the world instead of the power holders being the ones. Well, well, I really appreciate, Sarah, you saying global majority, because that's true. And I really appreciate that, that like now, because I shared this story on this podcast, that, you know, I'm going to be more cognizant, like I have to put it in my brain. And so um, you are absolutely 1000% right. And, um, and sometimes awareness, <laughs> awareness is 50%. And then the rest is practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, this is also like the fact that you told the story is actually part of how we begin, because what happens is, you know, I can imagine that there are people who might hear this podcast and hear that story and say, why was that racist? Right. You know, mm-hmm. of course, you were in an unsafe neighborhood. You would roll your window down three inches. I felt so, so embarrassed that I was like, after he said that to me, I was like, oh, God, you're such an ass. <laughs> right. But the thing is that Unless we actually take those moments to pause and reflect and say, wait a second, why did I roll down my window just that amount? Or why did I have this like contraction when I saw this man walking towards me? Right. It's like unless we actually stop and ask ourselves that nothing changes. So that's where you begin. You start to talk about it and then you open yourself. Like, I love what you just did with Sarah, where Sarah said, hey, well, I'm actually going to use the term global majority. And you took that and you internalized it and said, Yes, that's actually pointing to the fact that white folks aren't the majority. You're right. I can integrate that. So this is how we begin by going out, getting knowledge, listening, and then questioning our own practices and our own responses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, by, and by having, I mean, Roxy, you were talking about how, you know, you would beat yourself up just on a general basis. And of course I would too. And and anytime I find racism in myself, I, I, I hate it. And mm-hmm. so that's, you know that's why that's actually why we wrote the the self compassion handbook the anti racist heart is both for folks who are coming from privilege who discover both racism within themselves and that we're living in a racist society that denies support and healthcare and education and 
ownership of property uh, on an institutional level. Um, uh, and we we have it within our, so, so it's like you start to discover both things. How do you move forward as a person with privilege? You need a ton of self-compassion to be able to keep taking those steps for you to be able to tell the story. For um, And then if you're a person of the global majority, you need a ton of self-compassion to be able to keep going because it's exhausting to live in a world that's so broken in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we were trying to make this book with both of us writing that brought both perspectives of the need for self-compassion. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that are in the handbook that can help people who hear this and say, oh, this is me? Because I bet there's a lot of people that have little stories of racism where they go, oh, God, why did I do that? Um, And, you know, as somebody who came out later in life, I also, you know, like now I think of some of the things like I would say about LGBTQ people, like I would say things thinking I was like an ally saying, oh, I don't care who anybody sleeps with. (laughs) <laughs> and being like oh gosh that's it's so much more than that and mm-hmm. and like you know because I thought I was being an ally by saying that but that really isn't being an ally mm-hmm. and so what are some of the things in your in your handbook your workbook that people can use and are there exercises and things like that mm-hmm. yeah we've got um exercises throughout the book and and uh invitations to self-examination and uh, both of us tell stories and then we we kind of look at what are the lessons and there's there are questionnaires and and um another thing that that I work with a lot is uh, unconscious contracts ways that we promise ourselves for example one of the reasons it's so painful to discover that we have been steeped in racism is because we don't want to do any harm we, have, we even have a contract with ourselves. I will do no harm. That mm-hmm. If we actually have that contract, which most people actually do have that, like, mm-hmm. this is my commitment. I'm going to live in the world and I'm not going to do harm. Mm-hmm. But it's not actually possible. Mm-hmm. We live embedded in, in the United States, we live embedded in an extremely white and committed to white supremacy system. We, we are, we're doing harm if we think about racism, we're doing harm by existing. If we think about climate, it can take us all into this, you know, like we're all doing harm by being here. Mm-hmm. Can't escape that. As long as we have a contract with ourselves to believe that we'll do no harm, it makes us blind to the harm that we're doing. And and so uh, so beginning to look at that and say, okay, if I can't live without doing harm, how the heck do I live? What's my commitment? I'm going to do the best I can, even though I'm a part of a system that does harm, even though I've been steeped in racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep standing up, you know, I'm going to keep standing up and going forward and trying my hardest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 that takes both self-compassion, but it also takes releasing some of those contracts we have with ourselves um, to be perfect, to always get it right, to do no harm. So the book also looks at those things as well as, uh, Roxy, want to talk about some of the things that you offer? 
I think like a simple way to think about it is the book is essentially taking people on a journey. And so we start off by inviting people to look at, you know, when did you first even recognize, you know, like you have the coming out story? What's your coming out story around racism? Either experiencing and receiving it or um, committing it, right? So what's your coming out story about that? And then we invite people to start to look at, like Sarah said, some of the things that keep us trapped into not being able to look at and confront racism when it happens. We help people gain awareness about how our brains work and what are some of the mechanisms that, um, like unconscious bias, that keeps us uh, repeating some of the stereotypes and these ideas that we've internalized. And then it's like, okay, so now that you've done that, now that you know that, yeah, chances are you've done some racist things or experienced it, and there's a really good reason why it's hard to talk about it. How do we actually talk about it? So we help people get enough of an understanding of nonviolent communication so that they can start and we guide them through some conversations and some dialogues that they can have with other people, depending on what it is that they're trying to accomplish. So we help people understand both their journey to where they are and then what are some of the reasons that they might want to engage in some of these conversations and how to do that, depending on whatever reason that they choose. I'm really curious about the neurology of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Whenever, well, the most important thing for me is the research that shows us that whenever we have any any more power than anybody else, we automatically become blind to the people who have less power. We don't see their facial expressions. We don't register their facial expressions. We don't imagine their emotions. We we don't see them. We invisibilize the people that have less power. This is so profound that it even happens in effing monopoly games. Mm-hmm. That if you get more money on the monopoly game, then we then we uh, then then people start saying things like, you know, I'm good at this or something like that. You know, just they don't even realize the way that the that the. Uh, that the game is rigged. So we we are not made to realize the way the game is rigged. We're made to be unconscious of the way the game is rigged. I mean, Monopoly was created by somebody who wanted to demonstrate the evils of capitalism, and instead it just duplicates them. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the, yeah, there's a start. Roxy, do you want to go from there? The other pieces that I love talking to people about are the things around unconscious bias. A lot of times people have a lot of pain around like, how could I not see this? How do I, you know, even when I think I know that I don't believe this thing, how do I still keep acting on it? Right. And there's been some, you know, people try to, what's the word I want, discount um, some of the research around unconscious bias, but it's true. It's like, this is how our brains are made to work. One of the statistics I love is that in any given moment, and it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it, our brains are taking in 11 billion pieces of information, right? 11 billion. And at the same time that we're taking in all of this 11 million bits, we're only aware of consciously 40 bits, right? So think about it. It's like 40 things I'm aware of out of the 11 billion that I'm taking in. And some of that 11 million are all of the different stereotypes that are out there, all of the media images and information that tells us one thing. So I'm consciously trying to discount 40 things maybe, but I'm taking in you know, 10 million, 999,000 others. 
Of course, given that, our brain has to make shortcuts. And once we start to recognize our brain's habits, the brain's necessity to make these shortcuts, we can start to look for the kinds of shortcuts that we make and learn ways to counter them. So one shortcut that we might make is I'm going to look for people. I'm going to like people who I think are similar to me and dislike people or see them as outsiders of people who are different than me. And if I know that this is just a shortcut that my brain does, then I can start to look at somebody. And the minute I start to think this person is different than me, like when you saw that young man on the street, you can start to think, what's something similar about this person, right? So it's like, oh, he's wearing the same jeans I'm wearing. Ah, how cool. And all of a sudden, we start to humanize that person. So you know, the book talks a little bit about some of these common shortcuts that our brain brings through that show up around anti-racist work to help people just have this um, in their tool bag to help protect them, inoculate them against doing it all the time. How, why does our brain want everything to be unconscious? Because it's too much work. It's like, if you think about, you know, like I, I'm, I'm learning how to knit <laughs> and when I started learning how to knit, it was like, okay, put the needle in and wrap it around this way or was it this way? It's like so many different things to think about. Is the needle going through the thread or around the thread? It was too much. And you're slow. It's like every time I have to put that much effort into recognizing and categorizing, like if I asked you to tell me the 20 things in your room right now, just the fact of you naming 20 things would take probably 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. And you don't have time for that, right? It's like right. in that 20 seconds, it's like you need to take the next step. You can't say like, what's the floor doing? What's You've got to be able to move. And so our brains take shortcut because we have to be able to move through an environment that's incredibly rich. And one of the sins of modern society is that we've upped the amount of information our brains are taking in. We're not just moving through like this physical world. It's like now we've got info stuff coming in through our phones. So we take shortcuts to survive. And, and, and as somebody who's getting older, like the amount of information that is available to me today, which sometimes I love because, you know, I'm always somebody who wants to know, you know, how old is this person and things like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, still alive and you Google it and stuff like that. Um, but I do notice that the amount of information that I am required to process now is significantly higher yes. than when I was a little kid in the 70s. You know, it, I just, but what we what we also yeah. know is that your brain hasn't changed, right? right? So you're processing more information with the same capacity. Something's got to give. Something's going to be dropped. And that's what our brains are doing. It's like, okay, you're putting more work on me. How can I be even more efficient to do all these things you're demanding of me? Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like a big part of this, you know, it sounds like a lot of this is like Kristin Neff's work of, you know, self-compassion, common humanity, and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the third piece of this is also mindfulness. You know, you start to become aware of, of the things. How do you wake up? How do you wake up? You know, I think it's impossible to wake up if we don't actually put ourselves in situations where we can wake up. So it is really easy. Like you mentioned, you grew up in a mostly white community. I grew up in Harlem where it was mostly um, global majority folks. And I remember, and this is, it sounds almost embarrassing to say, I remember going to high school and there were white folks around me. And at one point there was one teacher who was so pale and I kept having this aversive reaction, like, ooh, there's something wrong with him because he's so pale. 
it's like, unless I have contact, unless I have experience with other people, I'm going to only be judging the world through the information I have. So get out there. I always tell parents, you've got a kid who loves gymnastics. Don't go to the little gymnastics studio right in your neighborhood where they're going to see other kids who are exactly like them. Go to a gymnastics school in another part of town where they're going to meet other kids and start to normalize connections and interactions with other children who look different from them, who have different economic statuses than them. That school is just as good. It's going to do such great things also. So find opportunities for more contact, connecting with people, um, opportunities to discount the stereotypes that you've otherwise taken in. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we're most changed by love. I think, you know, that as we get out in the world, and and this is why it's so important what Roxy's saying about getting out and being with folks who who don't necessarily share exactly our same socioeconomic race racial and religious background you know getting out there because this is the thing that we see changing uh changing white supremacists you know devoted white supremacist Ku Klux Klan members is when they start to form relationships with folks and realize, oh, I'm doing harm to somebody who I love. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is true, you know, as a starting point for folks who, who, who have privilege in terms of being white is like, as you start to, to love somebody, then you start to go, oh, I'm starting to be able to see the world from their point of view. And, and I'm starting to understand what microaggressions are because I see the impact on them. And then I think there's, you know, there there's a movement to to beloved community and to a commitment for the whole world. I think it can go the other way too, that people can have like this deep sense of integrity, like I want beloved community. How the heck can I start to 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 take action to to make that happen? How do you how do you deal with people that um dismiss your humanity you know for example like you know dismiss your humanity if you're uh part of the global majority or dismiss your humanity because you're queer because I have had this very interesting experience in this world of you know being really at the pinnacle of privilege you know white married kids you know career and then when I left my ex-husband and moved to the South and married my wife and did all that. I lost that privilege and I can see the disparity. My wife who has been out since 19, I keep going, she's in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> she's been out since 1985 um, is used to, is used to the system. So she doesn't see it as much as I see it. Yeah. Um, and it's been such a humbling experience for me. Honestly, it really has been an incredibly humbling experience. Um, so, so I've so for example, I'm thinking about this um, guy. Uh, I, I'm a minister, and there's a pastor that I I do water aerobics, <laughs> and it's me and all the you know I'm I'm almost sixty, and it's me and all the 60s, 70s, and 80s years old, and this gentleman knew that I was a uh, a minister and but then he found out I was a lesbian and and then he tried to save me um oh. he, John what is it John I always get I'm not a really good bible quote you know the the, the 
the, the saving verse. And he tried to do that to me. And, and, and so I tried to have a conversation with him and I said, I said, um, well, I said, because, you know, you, you have more, I don't know what we were getting to, but I said, you know, well, you have more privilege because you're a man in this world than I do as a woman. And, and, you know, because your gender gives you more privilege in this world. And he said to me, I don't see gender. And I said, well, that would be like me seeing, I don't see color. And so like, how do you enter into conversations that with people who are actually like resistant to you, do you give up? <laughs> like, what, like to me, I feel yeah. like I'm going to give up. I'm done. <laughs> I think, you know, for me, this is, it's such an interesting question because it depends on your purpose, right? right. So when you first started talking, part of me was kind of going, you don't have to have that conversation, sweetie. You know, just say, yeah. no, thank you. I don't need this. Really appreciate you. Like what I'm getting is your care for my soul. It's not what I believe in. So I don't want to have this conversation with yeah. you. And I want to really name that because anybody, anybody queer listening to this podcast, anybody who's um, from the global maturity listening to the podcast, there's sometimes this idea that we have to have these conversations with people. That's part of what being a good queer person or a good global majority person is, that I'm going to confront this kind of isms whenever they happen. And that's exhausting. So I often tell people, like, check in with yourself. Do you actually want to have this conversation with this person? And if you don't, I don't have to demonize them to say no. I can yeah. just say, I'm just not interested. Thank you. <laughs> and be done with that. So I just want to start there. So sometimes it is just walking away and saying, I don't want to do this. But well, other times... Thank you for giving me permission. <laughs> because sometimes I feel like that I have to... Um... For me, I feel like it's that I'm speaking for the people that are too right. speak because I like, I'm sort of ballsy. I don't really care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of vagina. Yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so that's, that's why, because mm -hmm. I think of the unexpecting person that gets proselytized to that mm -hmm. doesn't have my background and doesn't, you know, and then gets slammed by this in it. Yeah. You know, so that's why, but so, um, so thank you for giving me the permission to walk away because it really upset me that this person who was another minister tried to save me. Right. Everybody, my, my wife was like, why is that bothering you so much? And I was like, I, I can't figure that one out. I don't know why, you know? So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And part of, even when I hear you say that sometimes you're speaking up because there are other people who can't. I think that is really important, but sometimes what I want to model for those people who can't is that they also can say, no, thank you. I'm not doing this, right? Because uh -huh. yes. sometimes they just sit there frozen and feel trapped and all of the pain and frustration that you're describing, they're sitting through that. And I want them to feel okay walking away. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's that modeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. I never thought of it that be way that before. Like, you know, you can walk yeah. away from conversations that are difficult. Yeah. yeah. But then, like you said, sometimes you want to have those conversations. Oh, go on, Sarah. I just want to say it's not just conversations that are difficult because conversations that are difficult we can have. Yeah. But somebody really doesn't see us. It's not even a possible conversation. We're walking away from impossible conversations. We're not walking away from difficult conversations. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And that's a really interesting, like for me, this is part of the um, question around why do I want to have that conversation? So let's assume that you don't want to walk away. Then 
we often jump into these conversations because we feel trapped, we feel choiceless. But in the books, we invite people to think about what is it that you're wanting out of this conversation? Am I wanting the person to see me and understand my perspective? Am I wanting to understand what's going on for them and why they're doing this? Am I wanting to like support some sort of shared understanding between us? Am I wanting healing or am I wanting a solution? And all of these purposes invite us to different conversations. So with this person, like part of what I'm hearing is you were saying, I'm feeling a lot of pain that this fellow minister is doing this to me. So I can imagine in that moment, you were either wanting a conversation where he could see you and see the pain that was being stimulated, or that you could understand why is he doing this? You know, what's going on for him? Mm-hmm. And depending on like, if I were going for the seeing me conversation, I would actually say, you know, I want to stop you, John. I'm going to make up his name, right? So John, I want to have you stop because... In this moment, I was looking at you as a fellow minister and we had a lot in common. And what I'm telling myself now is that you're judging me and you're trying to save me. And it's stimulating a lot of pain for me. And I'm wondering if you're willing to just pause and listen to what's coming up for me and really take that in. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm now shaping what conversation I'm inviting him into rather than just letting him be the person who's driving that conversation. Ah, If he says no, I said, okay, well, then I think we're done. Mm-hmm. And you're moving the conversation from an impossible conversation to a difficult conversation. <laughs> uh, there's so much to learn here. I could talk to you all for hours. <laughs> yeah. I really, it's very fascinating the work you do. And I really like, I'm so grateful that, you know, both Sarah and Roxy are in the world doing this very, very important work. And, and, and I do see how it is a deeply spiritual practice. I'm always attracted to anything that says that. So I really appreciate the the work you're doing. And I would love to go deeper in this conversation, but that would be another whole hour. So So one of the ways um, I end this podcast all the time is to ask you if you had a coming out song and or if Sarah, for you, if you had a song that really just spoke to you about your own, your own like journey through life that like, it's like your power song that when it comes on, you put it up high in the car and sing along. So Roxy? Yeah, it's it might be cliched, but it's I sing the body electric from faith. Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I celebrate the me yet to come. Yeah, I love that movie when I was young. I think I saw it like I think I saw it three times in the theater. <laughs> and the lyrics are just beautiful, right? Like just yeah. really thinking about I'm celebrating me. Oh, yeah. I I also yeah. love the Irene Cara song. I'm out here on my own because mm-hmm. when I was coming out, I, that was part of my song because it felt like that at that moment until I found community and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that was part of my coming out experience as well. And Sarah, how about you? One of those songs that just blows you away. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it's it's Prince's Purple Rain. Um, We're yeah. all the same generation. <laughs> which was like the first song I ever heard that actually you know said basically trauma happens and it has an impact you know as I was just stunned so yeah I love Purple Rain was really important for me because that's when I was uh, dating my fiance Ben who was African-American African-American and I was you know a, a, a white girl uh, dating a black man in Connecticut and um, and we part were partnered for a while and um, that movie was so significant for me because I saw 
myself in it and I saw interracial relationships in it and I didn't feel so alone so that movie will always have like I watch it now and it's so bad but like (laughs) I I love that movie I just love because I was sort of in that culture too so I really love that movie so how about a book or a movie that has changed your life or changed your perspective on things my my biggest game changer was again my whole life is like really committed to healing emotional trauma my biggest game changer was alice miller's uh, drama of the gifted child um it mm-hmm. just all of a sudden allowed me to pop out of my the way that i was embedded in my family's trauma and, mm-hmm. and begin mm-hmm. to exist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mine is actually so i love fantasy <laughs> and there was an author, Mercedes Lackey, who writes these like a gazillion books. And one of her books was the Prince Crown Prince trilogy. Um, it's one of the early Valdemar books. And in the book, the hero is actually a queer young man. And th- these three books are basically his coming out story and falling in love with another person and recognizing his uniqueness and celebrating it. And those books, I was a young adult when I read them. And they so signaled both acceptance and loss and grief. And it made me kind of normalize, like, it's actually okay. Like, I think I read these when my friend had ended his life. And yeah, there was something about those books that made me recognize both that this is the world that we've inherited, one that's not accepting, and that we can still find each other. People can find pockets of acceptance and build community for each other and survive. So Mm -hmm. I love, absolutely love that trilogy. Um, I have to look that one up. I don't know it. Um, And so my last question is, how would you describe your life today? You can say something about this. I'm sure you know that a few years back, there was that It Gets Better series, Mm -hmm. like that It Gets Better video series. And I remember at that time, like watching every single It's Get it gets better video that came out and just kind of going, it will get better. It will get better. And now today I would say like, I'm at the end of that. It gets, it gets better video. Right. So I have a really rich life. I have two children who are thriving. I have like really deep relationships and connections with people and work that I love. And so I keep like just that year alone in the past three months, I've been to Brazil, France and Germany sharing this work. And in each case, having people move to tears by kind of like the insights and possibilities that they see. And so I feel my life is fulfilled and it's fulfilled and full of potential. So it, mm-hmm. it's really great right now. And in 20 years, it might be even more amazing. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Um, my life right now is, is very teetery. Mm-hmm. There's just a ton going on that's, that's really intense. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it has been an absolute joy to talk to the both of you today. So I highly, highly recommend that you all run out and get this um, book, handbook, which is The Anti-Racist Heart, a self-compassion and activism handbook. You have all have me incredibly achie- uh, 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 intrigued by all the things that you have spoken about today. So Roxy Manning and Sarah Payton, I am so grateful to have had this conversation today. Thank you for giving me such a rich morning. I appreciate it. So much, Emery.
Thank you, Anne-Marie. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.